0: I think darkness is your ally, you merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. By then it was nothing to me but blinding.
1: The shadows betray you because they belong to me. Welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are talking all about The Dark Knight Rises. Do you think, have we have we hit the low point, just like Gotham City? Or are we going to find otherwise? What do you think, Jake? I think we're going to uh, put away our fear, ditch the rope, and
0: climb on out of that prison all on our own. Uh, we're going to do it. After hopefully a little less than three tries. (laughs) Hopefully we can (laughs) we can do more than that. Yeah, because that rope hurts. I thought he I forgot how many times he actually
1: tried it until I rewatched it last night, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't remember if it was there was a montage of failures and how many there were, but I think it was like you said, just three times. (laughs) So I like the chanting too. That was cool. Sadly we have no chanting for
0: you on this podcast tonight, but this nice yeah not between <laughs> us no 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 but we like to get every episode started off with any uh christopher nolan in the news items um and so i will go first really quick on that yes note uh so there was a bit of a uh film twitter kerfuffle this week about oppenheimer so the president of the Cannes film festival gave an interview to variety and uh the magazine was asking him uh just you know what his thoughts on the festival was gonna be like this year or if there were any big regrets that he had about films that weren't in competition and he was like oh yeah like i'm real sad we couldn't get barbie or oppenheimer but the release dates for those movies are too late in the year and then he said something uh he said that uh, oppenheimer they wanted to release it later in the year to qualify for awards season And, you know, as always, you know, like you just have to release a movie within the calendar year to qualify for an Oscar. Um, Yes. So he could have, you know, just meant, oh, the festival's in May and that's slated to be released in July. So we didn't want to, we couldn't get it anyway, but uh, something got lost in translation. And then one of the, like, you know, discussing film or film reel update Twitter accounts that isn't really a news website, it just aggregates a bunch of other stuff. They picked that up and ran with it and said that that meant that Oppenheimer got delayed so as to not compete with Barbie on its opening weekend. Um, And that sent everybody into like DEF CON 5 mode. Everyone was freaking out. And they were like, oh my God, we're not going to see the movie now. And so, which would be. Dumb if they did that, one, because the whole marketing campaign of this movie relies on a countdown timer because it is about the atomic bomb. Um, and then all the, you know, the Barbie stands were like, oh, this is this is the power of Greta Gerwig and this is the power of Barbie. They didn't want to compete with it. And while I do sadly think that Barbie is going to, like, crush this movie at the box office just in terms of sheer buying power, I did not think that Christopher Nolan was scared of <laughs> going toe to toe with barbie on the july release date uh but then later it also uh, it all got patched up uh studio people were like no it is not being delayed the uh can film festival president clarified that he misspoke uh and so everyone is still clarifying that the movie is still slated to release on friday july 21st so don't worry we will not be uh, extending this podcast out until uh, October, November, Oscar Bay season, whatever is still going to be coming out in July. Uh, so that is that. Just you know, don't don't give in to film Twitter rumors. Don't uh, storm
1: in a teacup. Yeah, exactly. Storm in a teacup. I was yeah. not particularly worried at all when you texted me the supposed news. So no, no, I, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I do. Your problem. I do think it's funny that there's like a real
0: big, like you remember when Kanye West and 50 Cent released an album on the same day in like 2007. No, I don't. Uh, Okay. There was, there was was a huge, um, like the, the whole marketing campaign for both of those albums was, it was graduation and 50 cents. Curtis, I believe is what it was the whole marketing campaign was just like, you know, two titans of the genre at the same time intentionally picking the other person's release date to see who could sell more records and it was like a big the big beef uh, of the time and I feel like that's kind of what's going on here Warner Brothers is releasing Barbie uh, and Universal is releasing Oppenheimer and uh, famously Nolan was with Warner Brothers up until the release of Tenet and then the whole pandemic theater distribution thing happened and uh, he left and decided to park his car with Universal. Um, and so I think there is like an intentional like butting of heads, like war of the studio thing going on that probably is something that's way above Nolan's pay grade in terms of who chose when to release that movie. But um, that's an interesting angle to this. But I don't I definitely don't think either one of them are going to back down from that July 21st release date. But that was the rumor mill for this week.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for but, but stuff. the July times are kind of a. Good luck charm for Nolan in his opinion yes. anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, given who's in charge of Warner Brothers, doesn't surprise me that they'd be a petty asshole in the least. Yeah. The less you, said about them, the better.
0: Yeah. If you would like to read more about my thoughts about uh, why they changed the name of HBO Max to Max, uh, you can find that at bookandfilmglobe.com. I think it's a stupid name change, but... Uh, that's agreed. <laughs> way that's beyond the pale of what we're talking about now. So I will, that is my news tidbit and I will let you go on with yours. Cause yours is really, really cool.
1: Uh, with regards yeah. to Oppenheimer. Uh, yeah. It's a bit of a reach and a stretch, but it's we say adjacent things and I'm going with it since, uh, our next Nolan film up after this is interstellar. And I do have an Oppenheimer newspaper. So last week the astrophysical journal letters published an updated picture of the m87 black hole the black hole at the center of that galaxy and it's been cleaned up by ai and instead of just a fuzzy red orange dot with a small black speck in the middle it kind of looks more like a donut now or if you will the bagel from everything everywhere if you set it on fire (laughs) so so just a cool little black hole tidbit of news they say that this cleaned up image is probably more what things actually look like and they can take a look at that scientists and maybe make better inferences and predictions and point cameras at it better and try to take video and things of it so that's pretty cool Uh, especially yeah we're about to watch interstellar i'm hopefully planning to go see it at the end of this week in imax so that's pretty cool so jealous Yes. Um a much more clear imagining of a black hole than this AI fixed photo. Uh, <laughs> but then just a few days after I saw that news story break, I am continuing to read the Oppenheimer biography that Nolan's film is going to be based on just so it's ready in time because it's a it's a beefy book and I'm just about at the part in the 1930s where Oppenheimer is doing a lot of instruction in theoretical physics at Berkeley. And apparently one of the things he did in 1939, he released a paper with one of his graduate students. They published a paper called On Massive Neutron Cores. And the book says it was published September 1st, 1939, the day World War II started. The link to it from the actual journal says it was published in February 1939. But anyway, The point being that some of his work, he did some theorizing on stellar matter. And what this paper is, is actually, it originated the modern concept of a black hole from a 1939 paper. And we think, man, black holes have been around forever, the concept of it. But Oppenheimer co-authored the paper with Hartland Snyder, and they described how a star might collapse into an object so dense that not even light could escape its gravitational clutches. And it kind of languished in obscurity, this paper, until the 1960s, when astrophysicists were starting to take a look at whether things like that could actually exist. Now, Oppenheimer didn't coin the term black hole. Somebody else did that in the 60s. But the concept uh, he co-authored. So that's pretty cool. So we can even link to the abstract of that paper in the show notes. Pretty fascinating. And just the fact that, yeah, the black hole kind of link to a Nolan project you know, <laughs> with through Oppenheimer. Pretty cool. So, yes, yeah, definitely a reach, definitely a stretch, but still pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah, I didn't know he did. I mean, I knew he had the, I'm not as far into the book as you are yet, but I knew that he had other uh, scientific interests and stuff, but none that lined up so closely with everything that we're talking about. So that's really
1: fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to bury an Easter egg in that, (laughs) uh, into the movie somewhere about that be some passing reference or something that might be pretty interesting, but we'll see.
0: All right. And then we'll move on to the next segment with what we are uh, watching outside of everything Christopher Nolan And so we've got just a couple things this week, uh, one each from both of us. So I'll go first. Um, I just finished watching the uh, HBO documentary on Jason Isbell called Running With Our Eyes Closed. Um, And it's uh, about the making of uh, Isbell and his band, the 400 unit. Uh, It's about the making of their 2020 album, Reunions. Uh, It came out right in uh, spring 2020, but it was recorded uh, in 2019. Um, and so it became kind of like this, um, a big moment during the pandemic music wise for me, like I, that album really helped get me through the first like initial months of lockdown. Um, I remember just coming home from work and like putting the headphones on and plugging it into the, the preamp for the, the record player and just listening to that thing over and over again. I love this band. I've seen them, uh, four times now uh, and I'm going to go see them again a fifth time when they come through Dallas um, but this documentary is about the recording of that album, but it's also about the relationship between Jason Isbell and his wife, Amanda Shires, who plays uh, fiddle on I think every 400 unit album so far. She's also a really, oh. uh, a great poet and songwriter and artist in her own right. But the documentary is very much about their working relationship and their marriage and how much this album put a strain on it and how much the pandemic really kind of put a strain on them as well but it's not sensational it's not like a reality tv documentary uh, about like a who, he said she said type thing it's it's more like when what happens when two creative people who are extremely perfectionist collide and make a life together and also work together uh, and also what happens when one of them is sober and has been <laughs> fighting that for a really long time. And how do you deal with all of the, all your demons and stuff while also functioning as a husband and a father and a songwriter and artist and everything. And it's a really fascinating, compassionate look at that. Uh, that's more about their relationship than about the making of the album, but it's really good, especially if you like uh, listening to him and listening to their music. Um, and that's a part of the HBO Music Box documentary series. Uh, and so that's streaming on HBO Max, soon to be Max, uh, if you want to go check that out.
1: Yeah, when I saw that pop up on my HBO Max feed, I was wondering how long <laughs> it was going to take for you to have a have a letterboxd review come up on that. So if
0: I didn't have like work stuff or any other things to do before earlier in the week, I would
1: have watched it sooner too. So <laughs> <laughs> But I know he's probably your your favorite, if not yeah, you know, one of if not yeah. the favorite for you. So I'm very glad that you got to see that. Mm. But for me, the only other thing I've really watched in the last week or so is The Wizard of Oz, a rewatch, of course, not for the first time. <laughs> of course, seen that many many times, but it was <laughs> the first time showing it to my kids, and oh my it was goodness. also the first time I got to see it in HD, because it's been so long since I yeah, watched good, it, man. and it's, <laughs> that's how long it's been. And it was kind of almost like watching it for the first time, because, wow, you know, I just you know, always a treat seeing going from the black and white to the color sequences, but getting to see it in full high def was just absolutely mind-blowing. It's just, it really kind of brought home how incredibly made that this movie was and how well it stands up even today i just uh i wrote in my letterboxd review i kind of got annoyed every time i had to look away from the screen because my kids were doing something running around maybe a little bit really one of them (laughs) because she's still just a baby basically but just well i couldn't get enough i was just drinking it in with my eyes basically and just everything about it is pretty much perfect uh the only knock i possibly have on it is the fact that mgm decided to make it all a dream because you know audiences are stupid and we can't trust them to figure anything out for themselves and it's kind of funny how some of that attitude still hasn't changed you know even though fortunately we get a lot more stories that try to trust the audience and rely on them to just you know do some of the work themselves or (laughs) let you kind of do your thing But that's really a relatively small complaint in the grand scheme of it. Wizard of Oz definitely holds up. Honestly, the effects hold up just generally not just with the caveat of for their time. It's just really crazy how amazing it looks and how well it stands up. So go take a look at it again. If you haven't seen it for a while, that one is also on HBO Max. I need to rewatch that soon.
0: I think uh, here coming up for the... painting for gold series i've got uh i saw that it lost to uh i believe it was gone with the wind yes um so i i might be mentioning that in there that was the first movie i ever saw that like scared the crap out of me as a kid (laughs) i was not a fan of wicked witch of the west (laughs) but i also think that was the first movie i ever saw that moved from black and white into color and i remember being just utterly transfixed by that and then terrified by her So <laughs> yes yeah. I've, I've seen it since from when i was a little kid I and mean, i'm not terrified of her anymore but i just remember going to bed that night wondering if she was gonna come get me uh out from <laughs> bed or something <laughs> well, those covers tight around you mm-hmm, exactly uh but this is not a Jason Isbell documentary podcast or a Wizard of Oz podcast. This is a Christopher Nolan podcast. And like we said earlier tonight, we are talking all about The Dark Knight Rises, which is Christopher Nolan's end cap to his Batman trilogy. And so, as always, blanket spoiler alert reminder, this movie is 12 years old uh, almost, but we will try to give you a chance right now to stop it and go watch the movie if you haven't. Hopefully you've already seen it. But please go do that right now, because we're going to be talking about everything and talking about probably everything to do with Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. So you have been forewarned. Marshall, I'll let you do the uh, synopsis and all the
1: technical details. Sure. Yeah. The Dark Knight Rises, released in 2012. What a year. Directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Christian Bale. Tom Hardy and Hathaway in color shot on 35 millimeter and 65 millimeter for some of those IMAX sequences, 164 minutes long, the longest Nolan feature yet. Very long. And IMDb tells us eight years after the Joker's reign of chaos, Batman is coerced out of exile with the assistance of the mysterious Selina Kyle in order to defend Gotham City from the vicious guerrilla terrorist Bane. Which is a little bit misleading when you really yeah, think about what actually happens yeah. in the movie. Yeah, Selena Kyle doesn't really coerce him out yeah. of anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a,
0: just a. More of a, he, f- he finds the, the strength from within yet
1: again. But, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. how did you watch this movie this time around, Jake? And uh, of course, you've seen this before, but I think it's been a while.
0: Uh, Yeah, so this was actually the first time that I have seen it since I saw it in theaters, and I was, uh, funnily enough, how this kind of loops back to the Batman Begins uh, storyline. I saw Batman Begins in Tennessee, and I also saw this one uh, in Tennessee. Uh, The theater that I saw Batman Begins in had closed uh, by the time that I went back to visit family when this movie came out, so I saw this in, uh, I believe, the AMC in Chattanooga. Uh, with some cousins and if I remember correctly I had my wisdom teeth taken out uh, like a day before I saw this movie (laughs) and and so I remember no maybe I think it was the day before because I was there for uh, I was interning at the local paper I was on summer break about to start my sophomore year of or no just finished up my sophomore year of college
1: yeah this is actually the first Nolan movie that came out after we knew each other yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Um. And so it was a, uh, it was a wild summer for a lot of reasons. I had that taken out. I was working yes. first, uh, first uh, newspaper job. I was going through a probably the worst breakup I had had in my life at that point, of which I also um, have knowledge. Yes. Yeah. It was. uh We was don't not, talk about that. Was was not great, Bob. But uh, it's we okay. don't talk about that. No, no. It's <laughs> fine. I'm I'm fine now. Just a weird memory. Um. <laughs> And so I remember like I was also living with my my grandparents at the time and like I love them. But also there's not a lot of people my age in that town (laughs) that I'm not related to. (laughs) So there wasn't really a lot to do. And so my cousin was like, we're going to go down and like get some dinner and go see Dark Knight Rises. I was like, yes, please. Um, And so I think my brother was with me at this point. He had just been there. So he went with me, too. And I remember liking it, and I remember like really anticipating it. And the, the air in the theater was a lot like Dark Knight, uh, but a little bit more muted. There were still some people dressed up. Uh, it wasn't a midnight premiere or a late-night premiere or anything. But I just remember the act of watching the movie and what I felt about its actual contents was almost immediately overshadowed by when I got out of the theater, the news of the Aurora shooting had broke. And so I think that is what kind of dominated the news cycle for this movie for a really long time. And it kind of like didn't really allow anyone to look at it on its own. Merits apart from that for a bit, but watching it last night, I just remembered all of that more than the actual movie. So it was almost kind of like watching it for the first time again, (laughs) I remember bits and pieces. I remember the, the prison scene I remembered that opening on the plane. Um, but there were also a lot of just cameos that I did not remember. Like Glenn Powell is in this movie. Ben Mendelsohn is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy from, uh, this horror movie I saw called watcher, who's the main villain in it. He's in here as the, uh, the guy on the boards working with Bane. Um, Thomas Lennon yeah 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 Thomas <laughs> <Lennon>. <laughs> like what so many people the Nestor Carbonell's back as the mayor like yeah um also Juneau temple to, yeah uh, Juneau, it, okay it's so weird watching her with an American accent after watching Ted Lasso because it is uh, she has a very thick accent Ted Lasso and then it's just a generic American thing going on here Yeah, I wasn't sure it was
1: her, um, entirely until the credits finally popped up and I felt vindicated. Yeah, very, never picked up on that before. Yeah. She showed up and Taylor was like,
0: is that Juno? I was like, yeah, I think so. (laughs) Um, so yeah, just, uh all of that to say that the, you know, as is the theme with a lot of Nolan stuff that we've watched, it's you, you give enough time passing in between it and it's almost like watching it again for the first time, which is pretty much what it was like for me watching it last night uh, on my DVD copy. But it, the first time that I did see it was, was still a lot of fun. Uh, We can get more into my deeper thoughts about it, but good time in the theater. I don't really think I've ever had a bad time watching a Nolan movie in the theater. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this second time really like was the more substantive watch for me.
1: Yeah, for me, there's I didn't quite realize how many memories I had tied up with this until I started diving back into it and starting with rewatching some of the trailers. And I have very distinct memories and feelings for some of the trailers that came out for this, especially the final one, or at least whichever one they've labeled official trailer number three on YouTube from the Warner Brothers account. Um, with just how the music in that builds and the way they cut it and they put it together. That, honestly, even probably has more of a emotional impact on me than the whole film itself. It's such a really, really well-made trailer. And the marketing campaign and the those trailers really built the hype up big time. I kind of had them memorized beat for beat. I'd forgotten how obsessively I rewatched them because I just, could, was almost able to talk along with it. So I was really, really excited to see this movie and I, the, the marketing worked on me. I was ready to see it at IMAX. It was going to be my first time seeing a movie in IMAX, my first Nolan IMAX experience period. And then, yeah, the Aurora shooting happened. I was going to see it a day or two after uh, opening day uh, at the IMAX theater in Fort Worth and that kind of just put a whole damper on things and it was kind of surreal just having to talk through uh because i was able to go during the daytime to the imax theater and my uh well wasn't quite my wife yet Haley, and i weren't quite married by this time but she was you know went off to work uh so i just went by myself to the showing but it was weird she was worried and talking to me about like well you know what are you gonna do if something happens and i was like i know where the exits are but i don't know like what i be I, yeah. such a ridiculous thing to have to think about going to the movies and you know just i still think about that now yeah like yeah um it i didn't really think about it too much when i was in the process of watching the movie i, I mean i had it in the back of my mind and all that but it's symptomatic of a lot of larger problems in the country at large but that's not what we're really here to talk about at the moment. But <laughs> it was just such a bizarre time to be going to movies because it was such a, yeah, such a huge story. And I feel like you're right. It kind of did dominate kind of the cultural percep- perception of the movie. I don't know how much that persists today, but at the time that was just tied right up with it. But uh in terms of the actual theater experience, it was honestly kind of overwhelming because yeah, I'd never been in an IMAX theater before, or if I had, it'd only been something like to see like an educational film or something. And it was, I don't know if I was prepared. It was in uh the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History has that dome type of one. So it was, you know, in the dome projection. I mean, yeah, yeah, think, yeah. I can't remember. Maybe the seats did tilt back when the movie started, so you were kind of tilted up just like having this almost 180 degrees experience almost of being totally immersed in the movie. And I was just Whoa. <laughs> kind of almost stunned by it. It was kind of a sensory overload. So it it was fun and I enjoyed it, but there, I think some things we'll talk about in a little bit. Maybe I missed a few details plot wise because of it, but we can get to that. Uh, otherwise I've seen it a few times over the years. I've revisited it regularly so I've seen it. This is maybe about my fourth or fifth time watching it. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. But this time around, Jake, what uh, what are your thoughts and feelings? I don't know if we need to jump too much into a summary, in the interest of time, and we can uh, address things as they come up. What did you think? Yeah. Um, How did it play for you? It was.
0: Oh, I I said this to you off mic before we recorded, but I'll I'll have it on the record here. I don't think I've seen anything so far in the recording of this podcast, Nolan movie or otherwise for all the prep episodes that I've been like really disappointed in. I feel like I've always been able to pick out stuff where I was able to, to either see where the the people were coming from, or I saw why Nolan liked it uh, for all the prep episodes. Or if it was a Nolan movie, I was able to just be like, okay, well I get that, but not my cup of tea, but it's okay. Uh, and this one, I really felt like, I I think Nolan hit the nail on the head in the Nolan variations book where he said that it's really, really hard to do a third movie that does the first two movies justice. And this one it's watching it now, 11 years later, it's weird how eerily like dead on about some stuff that it really was about some stuff in the culture. Like, this came out right after the recession and the financial crash of 2008 and they filmed it as Occupy Wall Street was happening and so there's a lot of this tension of class warfare uh haves and have-nots um and just the the undercurrent that's always been there about people who have money and people who don't yeah um and there's a lot of that there too but it's Watching this after the Trump presidency and watching Bain was so weird and so eerie (laughs) because it it hits that thing of, I'm going to claim that I am like you, a common person who shares your interests. I'm just like you. I am an everyday average Joe, except I'm not. uh, But I'm going to get you to vote in this or in Dark Knight Rises case, I'm going to get you to act in things that are not in your best interests because you are fearful. Um, And I'm going to use that against you, but I'm the whole time you're going to think that I am on your side when really I'm not, I'm just looking out for myself and I'm looking out for whatever plan I've got going on. And so that was interesting to kind of see that line up with stuff, which obviously that was not on Nolan's mind. That's just, I mean, he said it's about demagoguery, which is right. What Trump was still is. Um, So, That part of it is really interesting to watch now. And I think that it does have a lot more interesting thematic things to say than a lot of people give it credit for, um, especially in that back half of the movie. But I do think it just gets really muddled and I think it's really messy. There's like two villains too many. I think Anne Hathaway does a good job as Selena Kyle, but I don't think she really needs to be here. Like I get the, you know, she steals from the, steals from the rich kids to the poor is a Robin Hood character. So you've got that thematic thing going, but like the, there's no sexual or romantic chemistry between her or Bruce Wayne. And then that kiss at the end, I was like, I f- completely forgot about that. I was like, where did that come from? I almost always forget about <laughs> that. <laughs> and cause it's almost like a James Bond thing where he, he gets with one woman and then it's like, and eh, no, for, you know, yes, I forget about you. And then I'm going to, yes. Continue. Cause he gets with, uh, Marion Cotillard, earlier uh, in the movie which uh, there's not really even but then i i was talking yeah. to Taylor about this too and i was like i don't really think there's a lot of romantic chemistry between him or any other actress in any movie that i've seen him in really but i just felt like there was too many villains going on and then with the politics of it all i get what bane represents and everything but i also at the same time i'm just like what is their ultimate motivation other than i'm bad so i want to do evil things and i'm going to take gotham down That is ultimately what I felt like it all amounted to in the end, really. But you may have other thoughts. I could be wrong. Uh, But I wanted it to be so much more focused than it actually was when really I know that that wasn't what they were going for. They were going for like a big historical epic, Tale of Two Cities, David Lean type thing, um, when really it just felt bloated. It had a lot on its mind, but they couldn't really focus on what they wanted to talk about to me really especially after coming from the strength and just the laser focused pointedness that was the dark knight and how that thing focused so much on duality and doubles and foils and one man can't live without the other and all this other stuff then you get this and
1: it's just kind of like flailing in the wind a little bit to me but yeah no, I, I generally agree. The 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 thing you said about Nolan talking about how it was tough to make a good third movie. He's His quote from the Nolan variations is, yeah, there are no good sequels, basically Rocky three, maybe, but they are very difficult. And since the moment I read that line in the book, I was like, um, yeah, yeah, what are the rings? Hello? Anybody? Yeah, here? yeah Are we yeah. going to are we going to ignore this? Um, <laughs> so I've been I've been waiting for this moment for months now. I just wanted to put that on the record. Return of the King, we got it. Um, so there's at least one. But <laughs> for this one, generally, yeah, it feels kind of like less than the sum of its parts. There's some really entertaining sequences here. There's, I think, some really fun performances. There's some really great lines. But when you get to the end of it and when um, after it's all over, I'm kind of just thinking about it. And it just it seems to play better and feel better when you're actually watching it but afterward when you're thinking about it or in this case when I was reading the script I'm like man there's a lot of I mean, I mean I've been aware of some of the issues and faults of the narrative before but really really like going in depth out of this time it's really even more glaringly obvious it's kind of like you know you've got a choppy radio signal fading in and out it's strong and clear and then it's distorted and fuzzy it's a good metaphor yeah yeah and so it's I think this time around, being able to slow down and read the script, I finally realized it just feels kind of like it's the pulling the same trick twice because it kind of treads almost all the same beats as Batman begins in terms of the plot because yeah. you get yeah. Bruce Wayne yeah. being absent from Gotham for a while, you know, eight years in hiding since the end of the Dark Knight. He's become a recluse. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the League of Shadows. You've got, you know, their emissary kind of showing up is there. Seemingly working for someone else. You've got Bane show up seemingly working for Daggett, just like Jonathan Crane is seemingly working for Carmine Falcone in the first one. But then Mm -hmm. the League of Mm Shadows shows who's really in charge. And then they take a Wayne Enterprises device and they weaponize it to threaten the city. You've got the vaporizer in Batman Begins and the the nuclear fusion core in this. And then including they're trying to use Wayne technology to deliver it or to use the weapon. You know, the shaking the train the Wayne train to the Wayne tower. And then you're using all those surplus tumblers in the dark Knight rises, uh, to Mm -hmm. patrol the streets and try and protect the, the core until it goes off. And then Batman is seemingly beaten by the league of shadows in both movies until he comes back and defeats both the, uh, league of shadows, emissary and their leader, which in both cases turns out to be someone of the Al Ghul family.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and then Batman destroys and blows up the device. So, it's really some details are different sure but it kind of feels like a magician you've got their act and you've seen it so many times it's still pretty fun and entertaining but now you're kind of wishing for something newer and fresher which to be fair to Christopher Nolan in his follow up to this with Interstellar uh, he definitely uh delivered but we'll get to that later. So maybe I don't know if this was maybe the the first instance of viewers like really 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 trying to poke holes and everything but yeah it's not yeah. too difficult to find them here so i feel like it was kind of just yeah that feeling of i feel like i've seen all this before but yeah but the
0: thing is i didn't like when you're watching it like it's the longest of nolan's movies and you do feel that length a little bit for the most part it goes by quickly it does strangely um, yeah yeah and like i didn't hate it like, I don't hate the movie and I didn't hate it while watching it. Like, it was still a fun time. I, I just, of everything that we've seen so far, this is the one that I'm probably least likely to revisit. Even if I wanted to do, like, more of a Batman rewatch, I probably would skip this one in the future, even though I like a lot of the set pieces.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, another thing I noticed, more so for the most since we watched following, actually, there is that mm-hmm. concept... I talked about when I brought up that letterbox review at the end of that episode of the characters just serving the plot and not the other way around. And that is fully on display oh, here because yeah, there's yeah. so much happens in this movie just because the plot requires it to happen. There's you know, so Alfred, much exposition. Yeah. yeah. Alfred gets yeeted out of this the narrative early on. Mm-hmm. Um, John Blake just, just knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. They try to, to uh, put Gordon in the hospital bed. Like. Yeah, so everything's pretty convenient. Bruce's reasons for going back to being Batman are kind of still muddy. He's holding a candle for Rachel, but then he just on a turns on a dime and sleeps with Miranda Tate, and it's like what? And he kind of makes a lot of really dumb decisions compared to the the Batman we know from the past movie. Yeah, or two, even though he was prone to being hot headed, but um saying the dark Knight in the interrogation scene but here it's just simply just i want to go beat bane because i'll just fight harder it's like what you know it's i wrote in my notes too much aggro not enough thinko uh come (laughs) on man (laughs) (laughs) just yeah
0: Yeah, like there was it, it almost felt like there was no motivation for him to fight bane other than oh this guy's in my town and i have been absent for a while i need to fight back whereas with the dark Knight, it was more of it was truly like a psychological this man is my id thing that i need to to kill um yeah and really and we talked about this in the the dark knight episode i don't know what this movie would have looked like had heath ledger not died yeah but i don't know like because that movie did tease a little bit to it was very it was open as to whether or not the joker's dead or not yeah. you know to whether or not they could come back and this one teases robin which i love uh joseph gordon it in this movie yes i think he's great and Absolutely. i really i know that i don't think no one wants to go back to this well at all but him as robin uh or him as nightwing taking up that mantle would be really cool but i like that it teases it and it just leaves it leaves you with it because that's how he does all the other movies in this trilogy because you got the Joker card at the end of Batman Begins. You got the open-endedness at the end of Dark Knight. And here it's just he's in the cave and that's it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think the ending of this, for me, it works really well. I find it very satisfying, kind of cathartic. Um There's saying Nolan yeah. himself talks about in the Nolan variations just generally how Say a bad ending can leave a sour taste for an otherwise good film, and then the other way around, a good ending can maybe leave a better impression for you for a film that maybe wasn't strong otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think that latter case is what happened here. Maybe it wasn't as strong, yeah, compared yeah. to either Nolan's other work or just in general. But it sticks the landing, not only for the film but for the trilogy. And you know, when you do that, I think that really helps with the impression. And maybe that's why I just. Like the feelings and thoughts around this one, just they, they do fluctuate on a little bit of a scale, but I think um, I think one of the things too is that it is probably the most comic bookish of all three movies. I mean, I noted you that too. Yeah, debate yeah. maybe or maybe not between Batman Begins, but it's just the it's how big it goes. It just takes everything bigger. I mean, we literally have a, a nuke going to blow up in this movie. <laughs> uh I mean from that know. opening that cold
0: open too with the, yes. the planes vertical in the air, I was like oh yeah forgot how nuts this thing is from the beginning
1: yeah yeah you've got like the lair and the Gotham sewers and then, then nice. some of the characterizations in the villainy is even more outsized and theatrical so and not necessarily a knock on it but it I think it does detract a little bit because and then some other moments are just kind of feel like they're included just to be cool comic book moments like you could throw that i say i think in a comic book and not even bat and i like when batman shows back up in gotham and he tells gordon to light the flare up he tells him literally to light ice (laughs) on fire that's already thin yeah and he's apparently returned to gotham with this time bomb ticking and he's taken this time (laughs) to rig up this bat of fire on this bridge just to be like hey i'm back bitches (laughs) and it's like it's a really cool moment but in the context of you know I'm always talking about trying not to think too hard about things, but when you've got a ticking time bomb, a nuke that's going to blow your entire city away. Do you really have time for that? <laughs> like save Gordon, get things rolling. Let's go, man. That and the,
0: this isn't a car. And the, oh, so that's what, <laughs> the, so that's what that feels like. It's just, it, there's weird, very light moments, uh, just as a reminder of how funny parts of this is much like, I mean, there's yeah. some, there's some humorous moments in, uh, the Dark Knight, mostly at the hands of uh, Lucius Fox and Michael Caine. Uh, Alfred. Yeah. But uh, Batman Begins really did have a lot of just quips and stuff like that. So this kind of does lean, loop back into it. And it's it's weird to think that Dark Knight is the anomaly in this trilogy in terms of tone and style and everything, I think. Because this, you're right, this does loop back to being very much like Batman Begins in a lot of ways. But yeah, that stuff, the the cold open and like the blowing up the bomb at a football game like that. Yeah. Great set piece, but wild, wild, like is too insane to, I don't know. Maybe the Joker would have done that if he was nuts, but there probably would have been a little bit more of a psychological edge to it other than we're just going to this up and then you got like yeah. i want to say that is heinz ward running that kickoff back
1: <laughs> oh it is yeah they, yeah. The, the, they use the steelers they use the players of the time yeah because
0: i was looking at the cast and i was like ben roethlisberger yeah i call him all heinz ward did they just ask the steelers if they wanted to be in a movie and apparently yes yeah so that scene is wild where he gets to the end zone and looks back like oh the football field's gone yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but that, and yeah, you're right, the sewers, and even the end with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, where he's picking up the bag, and the woman says, oh, there's no John Blake here, and he just goes, oh, we'll use my birth name, Robin. Like, he doesn't even go to Dick Grayson. It's just Robin. Milton's like, I'm not going to be vague. I will spell it out exactly for you. This is who this character
1: is. Yeah, there were times, I guess, to... Finish out my list of so, some of the things about the the story and stuff. There were times where it could have used uh, a little more subtext and a little less text, like with a couple of lines from Marion Cotillard's character early on, talking to Daggett, the the guy trying to do the hostile takeover of Wayne Enterprises. Mm-hmm. She says, "You understand only money and the power you think it buys. So why waste my time talking to you?" And yeah. then. Daggett painstakingly explaining this clean slate software to Catwoman when she's trying to force it. That you mean the thing? You mean the thing that makes you wipe all your Google? uh, (laughs) And I was like, wow, we're not really. (laughs) It sounds a little too good to be. Yeah, I was like, okay. When I read that in the script, and then it happened on screen, I was like, okay, yeah, let's maybe weave that one in a little better. Yeah, it hits you over the head a little bit too hard uh, yeah. sometimes. But honestly, I when you talk about too many villains, Bane and Catwoman, who's a, you know has a turn to being a hero, uh, I felt there was room for them. But things like uh, Matthew Modine's character, uh, his yeah uh, deputy commissioner, I was like, kind of what are you? What would you like, say? What's you do the here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because um, I thought Tom Hardy and Hannah Hathaway both were pretty great. Um, versus Anne Hathaway, just slays it with this. I mean, come on. She just, she really leans into the, some of the, the goofiness or really just the, the seductive kind of nature of the character. I, I mean, I really, really thought it was great. Maybe too quippy sometimes, sure, but that's all right. Um, and how she does early on, she leads both Gordon and, batman into situations where they really get punished for it almost like she's kind of fate punishing them both for the dent lie you know gordon uh, oh interesting she starts the string of events that leads to gordon ending up in the sewers and getting shot um, and seeing bane's lair and then she turns batman over to bane basically and he gets his back broken for it Mm -hmm. so just kind of that little symbolism was was pretty nice and for Bane I I know he's just a meme these days but there's still some really interesting stuff there he's also another pretty good foil for Batman not uh, on any level of Heath Ledger's Joker but just um maybe just what we said with things being a little bit too much on the nose but he has the same training and the same mentor but he goes the other way with it he's going to fulfill the destiny of things he has a similar hideout with waterfalls and everything Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah um it's sort of Batman having to face himself, basically, or an evil version of himself on his path to restoration. So it's kind of really nice Joseph Campbell stuff in that way. And it does kind of bring up the the question again of whether Batman or the Waynes at all have really been good or bad for Gotham. Kind of summed up in the line from Ra's al Ghul. shifting over that a little bit in Bruce Wayne's hallucination in the prison, saying, "You." You fought the decadence of Gotham for years with all your strength and resources, all your moral authority, and the only victory you could achieve was a lie. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, and back to Bane, he's he's still got some just absolutely great lines in this. Every line he's got. When I was watching this with Taylor last
0: night, she was kind of just laughing. I mean, he has become a meme, right? Uh, Yeah. You know, the... You were born in the darkness. I was molded by... Every everyone does the does the Bane voice, everyone knows the lines, but (laughs) yeah, they're memes for a reason, I feel like. Uh, Yeah, because
1: you can't stop talking about them.
0: No, and every everything he's got, it's a you can't say that Tom Hardy did not fully commit to the bit. Yeah. He just sells every single one of those line readings, like everything he says, iconic. You could turn anything that he says in this
1: movie into a meme, basically. Those were just the ones that stuck out yeah like i enjoy the performance i know the the voice too which i think we'll talk about that in the context of some of the sound as well in a minute i don't mind the voice like just the sound and the the timbre of it i suppose much i think it's really kind of cool and adds to the character a bit intelligibility can be another discussion uh in a second (laughs) but i guess to wrap up my thoughts on some of the story stuff number one i thought it was really cool how the misdirection trying to Make Bane seem like the heir to Razal Ghul and the child who escapes the prison just through yeah. delivering his story and the rumors via Alfred, who, who's a trusted voice for us, but they are rumors mm-hmm. within the context of the story. But it's kind of just like rumors are in real life. Like you may have a trusted person telling you stuff, but if it's just based on rumors, you know, uh, it's just another instance of no one letting the audience do the work. Uh, even if it doesn't come off as well, because with, when the reveal finally happens, that Miranda Tate who's been given control of Wayne Enterprises and in in the fusion bomb and everything, reveals that she's actually Talia al Ghul. Um, it's yeah. extremely rapid. Like There's about maybe two minutes between when... Or maybe, yeah, three to five minutes from when she reveals herself. Then they do maybe a little bit too much exposition in the middle of the climactic battle. And then, within just a few seconds of her leaving, Bane gets killed by Catwoman coming in on the Batpod... Boom, he's gone. And then when Talia finally dies, it's just the truck blows up. They open the door and she's about to die. It's like, okay, you know, yeah, like it's yeah, it's abrupt and kind of anticlimactic. You don't really get to feel that catharsis for the villains getting what they deserve Mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. But for me, what all that comes down to for that is if that twist makes everything that came before it better. You know, one of our favorite questions on here. And for that, I don't think so this time. You know, I feel no, like I don't think so. Even if you didn't have that, if you take that away. I don't think much feels too much different when you're watching it through again or afterward when they're trying to get the bomb and, and Batman toes it out over the bay. So, you know, can't uh, nobody has a batting average of a thousand. You got a swing and a miss on this one.
0: Yeah, I was surprised at how much exposition was still happening even towards the end of the movie, because like with something with Inception that we talked about a few weeks ago, and it's still explaining the rules of this world and the dream logic, it's still happening so quickly, but it's, it's a completely new thing, a new concept to the audience themselves. Right. So you're still going along with it because you want to learn more with this. It's almost just, why couldn't you have, figured out a better way to tell us this 30 minutes ago you know so i was i was kind of just saddened by that when that happened towards the end but uh things that i liked i feel like i've gone on and on about the stuff that missed for me uh stuff that i liked about it i really did enjoy the fact that they basically just got the steelers to play in that football game Mm -hmm. Um, and i liked the i love that ending uh we mentioned it earlier but the the cafe where it's brought up earlier from alfred saying you know i have this dream sometimes and i really want this to be true and sometimes i'll just sit there and i'll order a cup of coffee and i'll look over and i see you sometimes you're married sometimes you're married with kids and i really just want that for you because that i know that you'll be done and we can look at each other and acknowledge each other uh we won't say a word and we can just get up and go about with our lives and that's exactly how it ends and it's such a perfect cut loop that calls back to um i feel like i i got a lot of prestige from it the way that the editing bookends itself
1: well i mean michael Um, Caine and christian bale literally nodded each other at the end of this movie just like they do at the end of the prestige yeah (laughs) yeah and that's a good bookend to
0: you know the whole trilogy and it caps this movie and also the two movies before it so that's really cool i I really liked that and that editing technique that he employs so much and so well uh yeah yeah it was interesting to me now after watching uh, the Batman, the Pattinson one, how many, uh, how much plot points that shares with this in terms of the Selena Kyle stuff and the Congressman and uh, some of the other things with that, just they were kind of cribbing from the same music sheet uh the <laughs> comics for that. Yeah, yeah. And for all of the the clunky dialogue stuff, there are some really great set pieces here. And I also like the fact that one, the final battle happens in broad daylight, which is a rarity for a lot of superhero movies. Uh, And two, even the nighttime fight scenes, much like in Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, are uh, very clearly lit. It's easy to see things, very clearly blocked. You always know what's going on and what's happening, which uh, you can't say for a lot of (laughs) fight scenes in comic book movies these days. Yeah, Uh, And so I was very pleased that even though some of the stuff early on happened in the dark, you were able to make out what happens. And then before we get into some of the technical stuff, the final thing I'll say about the story and all the implications and stuff for it, I tried to find a letterboxed review on this that I noted a long, long time ago when we were first looking at this. Um, And then I think this user deleted their review for this. But basically the crux of it was um, so this summer, Avengers and Dark Knight Rises both come out. Avengers comes out first um, and kind of gets the the jump on both the box office and the conversation for the whole summer because it's the first time that all those superheroes are together in one movie. It's a culmination right. of a couple of things. And this review basically was saying that it, is kind of like a battle for the soul of superhero cinema between these two movies. Because on one hand, you've got the Joss Whedon Avengers, which is very quippy, very light, very sanitized, family-friendly, with kind of like a sarcastic sense of humor. And then you've got the Nolan Batman stuff, which is very self-serious, very concerned with worldly thematic issues, very concerned with itself to an extent, and also doing the burden of having to set up like the dc extended universe i don't think man of steel was the next summer so then that was uh Zack snyder's thing and nolan mm-hmm. produced man of steel mm-hmm. um so there was all of that and then dc has never really been able to get itself off the ground or cohere as much as marvel has been able to do uh yeah that. but the review made the argument that really like the response to to this and then after all the years of self-serious like cinema in the wake of like we wanted to like talk about very serious things and everything and then after the recession and after the stock market crash and then especially after uh because 2012 was arab spring i believe that summer uh 2011 i saw Uh, 2011 yes Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah 2011 was arab spring Making the point of that, like all these world events, like people are wanting to revert back to lighthearted stuff, basically. And that, you know, had this movie come out just like a year before or a little bit, it might have been able to set the tone for superhero cinema years down the line. But the way that it all worked out, Marvel basically won. And that's why we have 50,000 Marvel projects and stuff now today. Which I thought was really interesting because... You could, I don't know, you can make the argument that people wouldn't have wanted to continue watching this anyway after how muddied it was and how confused it felt in terms of tone and everything. But yeah, um, the Avengers also made, like, I don't know pr- how many millions of dollars at the box office this summer. But just interesting, the, the difference in tone was apparent even before all the fanboy people were like clamoring for DC universe stuff. And that has kind of been the the MO for everything since then. Like DC has always kind of been more grave, serious, you know, the Batman versus Superman type stuff. And then Marvel is, you know, whatever crazy comic book you can get like, yeah, let's do it. And then DC didn't really come up with anything that was crazy, uh, lighthearted until Aquaman really <laughs> which is fun, but like a lot of people think that it was, you know, like kind of at war with the serious nature of it. And I just think it's funny that like even now that's still playing out a DC versus Marvel thing that was a comic book fight decades ago. And now it's just translated to the big screen, (laughs) but this summer was pretty much what cemented all of that for it basically was the point of all of that big rambling, uh, which is just, (laughs) <laughs> interesting and maybe like had the aurora thing not happened maybe we would have gotten a little bit more better quality serious superhero movies before that but who
1: knows yeah, yeah. i don't have too much to add to that since i really haven't seen i've seen basically none of the marvel <laughs> movies and really none of the dc movies besides these but my impression and feeling has always kind of been based on all the stuff i've heard about it all it's kind of DC's just had so much trouble tripping over itself the whole time. So maybe even yeah. if things are a little different and things do come out earlier. I think my thing is it still might be the same way because Marvel had such a big organized plan with the phases and everything. And DC was just like, uh, what's this next thing we can do? Okay. You know, people will just yeah, go pretty, see it because it's there. And then, yeah. And I think DC's, if not forever, but for a long time, if they can ever catch up, going to be going to be, chasing that ghost but for this movie itself yeah i think the action's pretty cool that prologue and the plane yeah going vertical for my money still absolutely slaps i think uh so should we talk about the sound
0: <laughs> i think we have to because i think this is the i think this is the first one that people really started to complain about his sound mixing <laughs> they did
1: um First, I'll just quickly mention the score. Uh, I think Zimmer is up to his usual standard. The score does a bit of heavy lifting. I think at sometimes, times, maybe it's a little bit too, goes a little too hard sometimes, but that's kind of what the movie does overall. So it's got some great synergy there. He does make Anarchy sound pretty darn fun. The Fire Rises track, which is what plays during the the Stock Exchange heist and the motorcycles coming out, that thing. Blast you in a good way and then the uh, why do we fall track that plays as bruce is climbing up out of the prison that that every time oh, just always always gets me it's just a go-to motivation track too so love it even if it's a little bit over the top
0: yeah i really do the fire rises thing was was so good and like the especially we mentioned the chant earlier too. I just, I love that moment where he's finally climbing out of the prison uh, with that callback to his dad. I also like a lot of the, and the, the Batman movie with Pattinson does this too. The little, the little piano shimmy uh, every time Selena Kyle does something cool or something. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Her theme and Bane's theme
1: are great too, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A lot of nice flourishes there. I also really like, what zimmer did have you ever heard the the aurora tribute
1: song you know i haven't I, I i was reminded of that when i was looking at some things surrounding all that and i didn't look it up but i should have done that yeah
0: it's it really really beautiful um and it came out not too too long after everything happened just yeah, you know, he was just trying to say like yeah like sorry this happened but we we had nothing to do with it obviously but yeah here's the least we could do to to help uh do it i think all the proceeds went to victims families right Um, right so yeah but it's beautiful beautiful song which that's one of the ones that i associate more with this even more than the the typical batman theme that we've come to know and love throughout the whole trilogy when i think of the score for this movie i think of that add-on that shouldn't have happened but is a very beautiful addition to it
1: yeah yeah but the actual sound Oh, the sound! <laughs> Maybe it was just
0: my my TV and my setup this time, but I didn't really have a hard time. How do I phrase this? I didn't have a hard time picking out the voices and hearing what the dialogue was with Bane. I still did have a hard time understanding what the hell he was saying in some <laughs> <Yes>. parts. <laughs> Like I had subtitles on and I was like, that word doesn't sound like what he said, but I, sure, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't hard to, to pick out the sound of it, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I so I watched and I just had my noise canceling headphones uh, hooked up, connected to the TV. So I had everything piped directly into my ears. So no confusion about hearing people talk or anything, which was nice. But having it right there, I was able to notice that it did. It was really weird in some places that there wouldn't be any other sound. Have it was the, say the scene of John Blake talking to Bruce Wayne at Wayne Manor. It just seems like the dialogue just level just dropped in terms of the volume of it. Yeah, it's yeah. like I'm, I'm just thinking, why? Why is this? Why is this, something's weird? It doesn't sound. I have no idea. I have no professional on this or anything, but maybe it was just because I was listening for it, too. But it sounded weirdly kind of up and down in some weird places. Uh, and, and also, I didn't have any trouble with the dialogue this time around because I had just read through the script. So I was well up on what things should be saying. Bane's voice still is yeah, sometimes just weird and tough. And that's just what it is at this point. But the very first time I saw this in the IMAX theater, I distinctly remember having some hard time understanding Bane. Uh, I pretty much got everything, but I think the testament, ultimate testament to this for me is that the first time I saw this in the theater, I thought that Bruce Wayne had actually sacrificed himself and had gone out in the bat over the bay. And blown up with everything, and I thought uh, Alfred seeing him at the end in Florence was just a little wishful thinking from right. Alfred. It was either that, or else I somehow like missed that. And I thought I truly thought walked out of that theater thinking, oh, Batman died, sacrificed himself, and I had had a theory going into the movie, uh, having listened to the score ahead of time. There's a track on the album called the end which just sounds like a death march it's the it's one of the themes mm, and just yeah, slowed yeah. down like you know three quarters and it uh i think i'd made a facebook post at the time I was like you know this sounds like a funeral march i wonder if they're gonna do the thing and so i was maybe there's a little bit of the adrenaline of that like oh i was right yeah he's dead and so <laughs> i think I i missed a few things obviously especially that line at the very end where The software engineers are telling Fox about the autopilot. Totally missed that. Uh, So, yeah, I had a little trouble keeping up during the first time. Yeah, they had to just wedge that in there. Yeah. And so Nolan talked about it in the Nolan Variations, saying, you know, it was a PR nightmare. And then he told Tom Schoen, the fascinating thing is that when we would show the film to the audience uh, in test screenings, you would get all these cards saying they couldn't understand a word that Bane said, but we would get zero plot confusion in the same screening, which fine, but also I would say it's a movie about bad guy trying to blow up Gotham. How much plot confusion is there really going to be, even if you don't understand some of the dialogue? I Mm -hmm. feel like people still would be able to tell what's going on. Bad guy in mask trying to burn down Gotham. Good guy in mask trying to stop him. Very easy. (laughs) So, yeah, and I know some people kind of advocate in favor of the sound mix and the style of kind of being like just a wall of sound, everything's given equality. But I just in terms of watching a narrative film and dialogue, it's kind of important because that's when you're watching it and listening to it. That's one of the primary ways you get plot information. And especially in like a Nolan film and other films like it, where the spoken words are really critical to understanding what's going on. And if that's part of the whole buildup of everything, the emotional impact you're trying to have, you kind of need to hear that. So just from what things have sounded like to me before, yeah, I just (laughs) feel like you got to make sure that dialogue is nice and forward. But as far as a, I don't know, like a music concrete Kind of thing. If that's what you like, and you just like that wall of sound, you go ahead. I'm not going to stop you, but I, I feel like you need that information. <laughs> that said, I don't feel like it's as bad here, maybe as it was. Possibly, you know, I, I remember watching Interstellar, and yeah, tell me how Dunkirk things are. Oof, feel yeah. feel more wall of soundy and just totally mixed together with that. But I'm going to find out soon how big and bold and stuff it really is with interstellar
0: yeah i was gonna say tell me how the interstellar imax thing is because when i saw dunkirk in imax that was one of the things that i remember was just the the sound especially for tom hardy's section of dunkirk, i was gonna say I tom could Hardy not again really mask. Get anything
1: yeah less intelligible in dunkirk than he was here in the dark knight rises <laughs> yeah at least here he's got a nice
0: little little accent to go with it which i thought that most of this must have been adr like he recorded it afterwards but they must have done really good adr towards some parts because i was talking about that with taylor as we were watching and at one point she goes well his his adam's apple is moving pretty well in sync with whatever he's saying so i think he actually is saying it it's just his accent is crazy and they must have added the voice filter thing on his mask but whatever the case he he's having a time with that dialogue (laughs) he's
1: yeah i
0: giving him an inch and he's taking a mile with it it's great but (laughs) just iconic villain (laughs) yeah
1: yeah I think this this I agree the sound here kind of the first one to have everyone's having that discussion I mean I feel like there is something there since everybody's talked about it I think even professionals talk about it I don't I guess I have to check. I don't know if this one won any kind of Oscars for sound mix or or anything like that. But, you know, I think that would be indicative a little bit in and of itself, because I think the industry professionals vote on awards like that. So, yeah, 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 you know, let's pull up the pull up the things here. Do we have any? uh, I don't even know if there's any Academy Awards here. I didn't even get a nominee for any Academy Awards at all. It won the bafta for visual effects. So I think that tells you a little bit here. But yeah, I think we'll will be keyed into that as we go forward. Uh I mean, I didn't even mention Tenet. Tenet I for the life of me. It's just watching at home. I did not I get the chance to see that at the theater. Tenet I, Tenet in the theater was was rough sound wise.
0: Um but I also saw it at like a what was it a cinemark so i don't know if they had the this was also middle of the pandemic where i had to watch it with masks and a capped number of people in the theater i had to run a theater for my birthday we can get more into that story later when we talk about it but (laughs) and even then i was very confused in some parts of the sound let alone the plot was confusing but i think this time i'm maybe they cleared it up for the blu-ray release i might watch it with my noise canceling headphones on just so i can get the full immersion experience but i think that's the biggest offender in terms of just wall-to-wall sound mix stuff with his movies because i remember seeing interstellar in the theater and not being too overwhelmed by it Uh, Mm -hmm. it was loud and i did understand the complaints but uh, it wasn't too bad dunkirk i think i chalked up to maybe it was just i felt like i was in an imax theater so it was way louder and Speakers were cranked up more than normal. But then Tenet, I just sat there thinking what in the world was happening in multiple ways than one, but also sound mixing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I watched Tenet for the first time with stuff piped into my ears too, which we can get to when we get there. And I still was struggling. I had to have the subtitles, so yeah, it's definitely... It's definitely something to talk about, but we can, I think, put a pin in that for now. Say maybe this one, not as bad as the perception was at the time, maybe because other things overshadowed it later for, for no one, but yeah, we'll see. Um, I want to talk a little more just uh, before we pull the curtain down on this a little bit about Politics and things, uh, maybe just what Nolan had to say from the Nolan variations about the political implications and interpretations of the Dark Knight Rises, because we've talked about yeah, kind of captured the zeitgeist a little bit of that populism and some of the the bane lines of saying you know take we take Gotham from the corrupt, the rich, the oppressors who've kept you down, and we give it to you, which incidentally I think is one of the lines Trump cribbed in his inauguration speech, but. Some of the some of the things he's, the bane says, they do feel kind of nice. It's like a symbol of oppression. This this prison. It's like yeah, you're right. All these people unjustly imprisoned, and then you think about it, it's like no, no. This guy is trying to just. His ultimate goal is to blow up the city. Why can't we just have a, why can't, why can't we have a revolution where the, the the bad corrupt, people you know, get what they deserve to get brought down a peg, and then we have that balance. Why can't we just do that? Everybody? It's kind of a note I wrote. It's was like, uh, can we not do this violently? But that's just uh, kind of what I touched on talking about things in the last episode. That's uh human nature. People have power. They don't want to give it up. <laughs> and then people take the power and then they uh, give back what they got. And then some. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The tribunal
0: court scene, yeah, yeah, yeah. Killing is again, yes, Killian, which is both maybe the one of the most comic booky things in this entire trilogy with that massive seat, judge's seat, with all the paper, oh yeah, flowing down, and he's wearing and then, like crow's feathers on his shoulders, this yeah, it looks like King being King it. yeah, great, great touch, but then yet also being the same type of just almost very like base lizard brain, human thing that we've done for our entire existence, just finding someone to scapegoat and impulsively blaming them for stuff and sentencing them with no form of uh, representation and no
1: form of uh government or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then re-. I don't know how much um, I was aware of it at the time, but Tom Schoen bringing up some of the absolutely insane interpretations of this movie, not least of which is Rush Limbaugh saying the Bane capital connection to the name of character Bane, which of course is complete, obviously complete lunacy because Bane is a character been around for how many decades at that point? But, you know, just that kind of. Also, they're
0: spelled differently, like.
1: Yeah, but just, you know, when well, that's the kind of bad faith, moron bullshit you get from those kind of areas. And then somebody else, another like conservative commentator trying to say, like, this is what the left wants with all the burning down the stock exchange or something. There's another person that Tom Schoen cited. But the the yeah. the quote I've been holding back just for this occasion um, <laughs> that Tom Schoen pulls out from. Of course, it's a New York Times columnist who finds uh, the, Ophel- the balance rust <laughs> out. Um, I don't read that guy. I don't know what his whole deal is, but the quote that he had about this film, I think perfectly strikes at What, uh, Nolan was aiming for anyway. He wrote or around the time, uh, was that, uh, across the entire trilogy, what separates Bruce Wayne from his mentors in the league of shadows isn't a belief in Gotham's goodness. It's a belief that a compromised order can still be worth defending and that darker things than corruption and inequality will follow from putting that order to the torch. This is a conservative message, but not a triumphalist, chest-thumping, rah-rah capitalism one. It reflects a quiet Toryism rather than a noisy Americanism, and it owes much more to Edmund Burke than to Sean Hannity. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. after sitting for that entire Nolan Variations book with hearing Nolan talk about things about the book and about his trilogy of films that kind of seems like a absolutely perfect distillation of how he, Nolan kind of views things because Nolan himself throughout the book was saying like, this film was not supposed to be political the films and the trilogy are not political acts. And also his just killer quote that I mentioned last episode about, you can't use narrative to tell people what to think. People react against it. Maybe you you, know, you try to put things in there that you care about, but you can't be so obvious about it. Then you have to risk misinterpretation. So he's very much trying to not leave that out of it, but let people just put it out there and let people do with it what they will. Because um, he said that this film was, in his opinion, is the one that's been, quote, pushed and pulled in the weirdest number of directions. And... Going back to that Limbaugh thing. see, No kidding. Um, but I also think just maybe a little bit naivety on Nolan's part Maybe me, that's not the right word, but of course, you know, maybe the films aren't supposed to be political, but with anything like this, any kind of art, people are going to take what it means to them and try to apply it to their lives and how they see the world. So maybe he does understand and realize that, but Yeah, I think it speaks again to what you mentioned kind of right at the top of how it kind of tapped into had a lot of things of the time that people were really feeling. I mean, that the Occupy movement, when I did an internship in Washington, D.C. every day Mm -hmm. on my way to my work, uh, the square I walked through was where the Occupy D.C. movement had set up. So for four months, I was walking through their camp every day and Uh, Yeah, there was there was some real energy and anger behind that. Uh, I was too young to really like have a grip on what was going on at the time. But it was there and he just, as I mentioned last episode, he kind of tapped into the zeitgeist, kind of got got a little lucky because they started writing this movie in 2008 or at least discussing the story of it. And. Yeah, I feel like it was a it's a perfect storm
0: of what was going on in America at the time. And then also the influences that he wanted to bring to the movie with *Tale of two cities stuff. Cause he looked to that initially for the, uh, the historical Epic parts of it. But then that also is a story of class warfare and class tensions and also prison and fathers and daughters in prison. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there that we haven't really touched on yet in terms of how it's related to the movie. But, um, there's all of that but then there also was uh you know the 2008 housing crisis and the then obviously occupy um what i think is interesting too is the characters in this movie are even expressing like the minor characters are expressing their frustrations with this inequality in some ways too in very subversive ways uh that Nolan mentions in the book that he was surprised they could get away with a lot of this stuff but they did in a big blockbuster superhero movie but the moment that stuck out to me the most in regards to that was when bane and uh, everyone is they're overtaking the stock exchange and the cops show up to put a blockade around it and uh the deputy commissioner is ordering all the cops to uh, yeah. or the or the security guard from the bank is telling him to tell the cops to everyone go in there and stop it. The cops immediately, the, the beat cops immediately are saying, no, why am I risking my men's lives to go in there and save your money? And the bank official has to be like, no, 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 it's not my money. It's all of your money. You, the bank has all of your money in it. And the cop goes, I keep my money under my mattress. Just the immediate difference between okay, you can play the stock market all you want, but I'm going to take my money and I'm going to keep my money. (laughs) Yeah. And the, the saying all of that with just a couple clips of dialogue got to the, the heart of it really, which is it's tossed off in a almost comedic way to levy uh, some tension in that scene. But that's really what the whole thing is about, uh, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, the, this thing has been used as a, not a punching bag, but a a way to make a point for both the right and the left ever since it came out. Yeah. Like you mentioned with that column and it's really interesting. I don't know. I think he, I mean, all art is political and you can apply political lens to pretty much any piece of art that you find. But I always do think it's interesting that Nolan always is just, oh, we never meant to make anything political. And I don't know, just an, a, an aggressive campaign almost to stay out of anything that might be controversial or might be bad for business (laughs) Um, sure very very savvy on his part and even in the the nolan variations there's not really a lot there about what his personal belief system is you can kind of glean a little bit from it from all the movies that he makes but again that's also you taking your own political biases and your own lived experiences to whatever you watch yeah um yeah but yeah I also don't think it like by I I don't know what it's trying to say in the end basically about all of that does that make sense like I'm yeah it presents the the problem and it does have Bruce Wayne going bankrupt and falling not just physically having his back broken and put in prison but also having all of his wealth stripped away to where all he is is just the man and the man behind the mask but it's still the rich billionaire who sacrifices himself and saves the day and the people who came in to shed light on the wealth inequality no matter how misguided that message was with their final actions the, the mouthpiece for the the inequality stuff is then still in the hands of a villain. And then, but you do have Catwoman saying, you know, all the stuff about how the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and that's why she steals from the rich. But then she becomes a hero, and so that's good. But the overwhelming rhetoric about all of that stuff comes from the villains, and then they die. So I don't know what it's really trying to to tell the audience there toward the end. But the message stuff is there and it does get the audience to think about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I agree there and just, it's hard to get a read on that and it is hard to get a read on Nolan's personal feelings on things. I think just by design, maybe it's even before his experience with memento and talking about the story as he discusses in the book with how he interprets the ending and maybe he learned from that and, keeps his personal views out of everything. Maybe he was always going to be doing that and just has a very managed relationship with uh, the press and a public persona, or at least what he says out in public. Uh, Because one of the appeals of this book was, Oh wow. Like we get this in-depth talk with him because he never really does anything like this or it's just get your, your junket interviews really for the most part or the exclusives and, This book was able to dive into things a whole lot. So for all that, it it really strikes me as uh, I think McConaughey has described himself as aggressively centrist before. I think you could put that label on Nolan as well, just based on what we know, what we can infer. Who who knows? Maybe he's really far one way or the other, but maybe he just wants to keep that on the down low. I don't know. So that's what we got there. You have um, anything else to wrap it up? Um, I have a Catwoman power ranking. You want to talk about that? <laughs> uh, that sounds like something good to to wrap up the conversation. Uh, the only other thing I was going to mention was the uh, kind of the talk about the clean slate stuff just briefly, because the yeah. Nolan variations chapter goes in quite a bit on that. It I mean, it didn't feel like really? that kind of huge yeah. to me. Uh, I mean, it was a big part of Catwoman's story Uh, and it's, you know, quite the MacGuffin, but Tom Schoen really went on, did one of his experiments based on some of his discussions with Nolan, tried to talk to people in London about trying to find which direction is, can you orient yourself without using your phone just based on where you are? It did a good deep dive into it. And Nolan talks a lot about reliance on technology and, and things like that, um, advocating for analog without explicitly saying it. (laughs) I think they kind of dovetailed nicely with some of his quotes elsewhere in the book about um I think at one point he says we're being controlled with talking about media and stuff like that. But he said not in like a super conspiracy theorist way, but basically kind of from a media literacy standpoint, how outrage is kind of manufactured and the kind of messages that are delivered. And if you're not really thinking about and paying attention, you're just kind of subject to the whims of whichever Outlet you decide to plug into without really thinking about anything critically, so very very true. But in the end, yeah, I came away with also yeah more analog experiences. I just want to go find mm-hmm. them, see if there's any video rental store that still exists anywhere. <laughs> trying to find that really. Um, um, in Austin, yeah, I think I think I love Video
0: just came back,
1: and I think they're gonna maybe do, and there might be another one down there somewhere. So cool it'll be something good yeah. to look into but uh but basically see the the focus on just kind of drawing attention to all that in the movie was it's an interesting concept and yes very very convenient for a master thief to try and be getting a hold of that but i think it's just a continuation of some of the some of the things like in the dark night with the mass surveillance technology uh whether by luck or design I believe Nolan said that his brother Jonah pushed to have that in and around this time actually uh, Jonah Nolan uh, was getting person of interest off the ground which also deals with a bunch of themes of mass oh, yeah, surveillance right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and all our data being stored somewhere and the government it has easy access. The government and everybody has easy access to it. John Nolan, their uncle shows up and is, uh, eventually has a has a big role in that series. Michael Emerson is one of the leads along with Jim Caviezel anyway, just dealing with some of those themes and around the same time. So it's clearly on Jonah Nolan's brain uh, when this came around, uh, go watch person of interest, great show, but yeah, I just wanted to, to give a quick shout out to that, to that aspect of the movie. Don't know if you have anything else to say on that, but we can get to the important things now.
0: Uh-huh. of so my Catwoman power rankings. Uh, you're you're
1: well situated to do this since uh i have seen this i have seen the batman i don't have strong enough memories of the batman series from the 60s except that i remember watching it i don't remember earth the kid at all uh and i actually uh haven't seen batman returns but we're not going to talk about that right now keep going with your rankings Jake. (laughs) (laughs) you should it's great
0: uh it is it is uh crazy uh One might say batshit crazy. Uh, I see. (laughs) Um, I also haven't really seen any of the early Batman stuff, so worth the kit's not going to be on this list. Sorry, uh, to miss kit. Uh, Sorry, Isma. But uh, for everything else, I'm going to go with Pfeiffer from Batman Returns, Kravitz from the Batman, and Hathaway, and then sadly Halle Berry. Even though that basketball scene from the Catwoman movie is so much fun.
1: Oh man, I'd forgotten about early odds. Early oh god,
0: early odds camp at its finest. It's fantastic. Uh, I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer just like set the standard for the movie versions of it again. Haven't seen anything from Ortha Kit. Um, really liked what uh Zoe Kravitz was doing uh in the Batman. Um, and that one also I felt like. Michelle Pfeiffer and, uh, Michael Keaton. I felt like they, there was actually some, some tension in chemistry there. I also felt like there was something there with, uh, her and Robert Pattinson for Batman, this one, again, I was like that kiss comes out of nowhere. They are like antagonistic work buddies at best for the most of Dark <laughs> <my laughs> races. Um, but she does do a really good job of hitting the comic booky stuff. Although when I was watching it, Taylor was like, I just, I don't know. I feel like she does the, have you, um, have you heard the, any of the new Taylor Swift album? No. Have you heard the, the sexy baby, that line? No. (laughs) There's a line where it's, um, sometimes I feel like everybody's a sexy baby and I'm just a monster on a hill but the sexy baby thing has been like a meme on TikTok and everything. And they just like, I feel like she's trying to do like a pouty, like I'm just a sexy little baby saying like, <laughs> with her like, oops, like I stole your pearls type thing. But I, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's, she's camping it up on purpose. Uh, which is funny, but also, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. don't know what, where any of the, the plot stuff for her came in. And then Halle Berry is just, maybe if she had a better movie better script it would have been better uh but uh, the the basketball scene was pretty fun but that's about it but that was you know thinking. that movie
1: by reputation so yeah i don't know yeah. if it's worth it by it's know. maybe i'll look up the clip eh, they'll look up that clip for sure maybe we'll
0: link it in the in the notes <laughs> um uh, that's we're veering very close to Dunkachino territory. On, it is on par with Dunkachino as well. Maybe <laughs> that could be the the outro sound. Uh, I can't remember the dialogue from it, but it's it's great. But that was what I what I have. Um, maybe we can do a Batman power ranking at some point. I didn't think to do that, but that was all I had. Just a fun little little ending moment.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, based on the the two Cat Women I've seen, maybe I well, need to see Zoe Kravitz one more time. But she was great. In the batman so i don't know if i have too much to argue with there with the placement of those two but i think uh i think we've tortured this thing enough uh it's, it's yeah, time to go the to yeah.
0: letterbox reviews all right let's do it i can go first i got mine pull up right here Do it. uh mine is from dan solomon who's a culture writer at texas monthly and his is kind of long so i'll highlight uh one sentence where it says I think this might've been actually good if it had been two movies instead of the most boring parts of two stories smushed together, but I didn't (laughs) mind rewatching it. And that's from a rewatch from 2020. It looks like, wow, almost exactly three years ago. And yeah, like, I don't know, maybe it could have done the, that annoying thing that Harry Potter and hunger games and all the other series were doing where they split the final part into two movies just to get more ticket sales.
1: But I, I do argue that splitting Deathly Hells was still. Good. I think, yeah. There's no way you arrogant, could. I was there's no anyway. way you could put that book into like a the, two and a half. Hour the copycat hour. moves yeah. for the rest of everything. Stupid. Yeah. but yeah,
0: I, it's, yeah. It's, it's a savvy, savvy business move, and everybody good. won. And move, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, and like, there's no way you should. You need to split Mockingjay into two parts. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, I do think that maybe if they had a little bit more time to explore a lot of the thematic stuff towards the end and some of the other villain background stuff, that might have been interesting. But then that would have been I I don't know where the split would happen and I don't know where you would divide all of that. But it's pretty much my thoughts of his his whole thing basically was saying that it's still pretty interesting thematically than we thought it was at the time, but still just a kind of a mess and when I saw it after I, overed, I was like oh yeah that's pretty much what I felt like too so
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, don't mind rewatching it but don't think I'll rewatch it anytime soon
1: sure sure well I chose a review that was maybe a little shut your brain off maybe just like how I sometimes watch this movie because it's from Jay at Jay this guy must have been around since the beginning of Letterboxd to have that username. Jay's a patron, I guess unsurprisingly. Anyway, uh, the review of The Dark Knight Rises from Jay. Not the Jay we talked to on this podcast, but another Jay. Uh, Doctor, I recommend you don't go skiing anytime soon. Bruce Wayne in literally the next scene. Teehee, zipline, go bzzz. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Some good synergy with Money Printer Go Burr, considering all the stock exchange shenanigans in this movie as well so
0: <laughs> that also makes yeah. me think of the the year one scene where he's
1: skiing and the dialogue is oh all yeah, about, yeah all about how he has to get back to talk to gordon yeah yeah this, this was my cover i was doing this you see uh, yeah without it yeah, i was not yeah. doing certainly wasn't doing any batman things of course not yeah never that would be wrong bruce wayne i don't know yeah
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think uh, I think that's all our thoughts. I think we got it. If you don't have anything else, we got something. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let us know what you guys think of this movie. If you want to, uh, you can find us at at friends at dusk pod on Instagram and at friends at dusk on Twitter. You can email us at friends at duskpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris 4 and on
1: Letterboxd at 808jake underscore. Uh, and where can they find you, Marshall? They can find me on Instagram at marshall.doig, on Twitter at Marshall Doig, and on Letterboxd, where I pretty much live all my digital life these days on that site now, <laughs> um, at mdoig
0: please like and subscribe Uh, leave us a five-star rating on Apple podcasts or on Spotify, uh, anywhere you subscribe to us. You don't even have to write a review, just hit that star rating uh, so that we can surface more in uh, searches and on lists for movie podcasts. Uh, You can support us through our Spotify podcast page. If you so desire any money is appreciated. We're handing out the, the coin hat here. And if you want to find our list of resources uh, in the show notes, we have all those linked there, including the basketball scene from Catwoman. And next time we will discuss all of the influences
1: that we have on Interstellar. Yeah. A little bit of a slight twist, but we'll talk about what we're going yeah. to talk about next time. Yeah. yeah, it'll be, be quite interesting. It's fun. Don't worry. Yes. We'll have a good time. Thanks. But in the meantime, that will do it for us here. And we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye.